Welcome to the Revo Podcast. Revo Church is one church in two locations with a vision to spark a revolution of life change through Jesus. We hope to accomplish this through our core values of love big, serve hard, live bold, grow deep, and move forward. For more information about our service times and locations, please visit our website at discoverrevo.com. Hey, if you don't know where 1 John is, like, there it is right there from the back of your Bible, if you have this one. Go to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, a few pages to the left, uh, you'll find 1 John. That's where we're going to be hanging out for the next few weeks. But in order to understand, like, this book, it's just a really, really small, short book in the New Testament. In order to get this, you have to be able to get John, the guy that wrote it. It's like, I mean, it's powerful crazy, ridiculous story that this guy has. He not only wrote the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, super creative titles, uh, but he also wrote the book of John, another great title, uh, one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is about Jesus' ministry. And the, the first time that we're ever introduced to John is when Jesus is choosing his disciples. John was one of the 12 disciples. And so there's men that Jesus has chosen. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, we, we see the list. It's like Jesus is the team captain, and he's sharing who made the team. And here's what he says about uh, James and John. He says, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. That's the first thing we learn about John. They got a nickname, Jesus. I mean, picture Jesus is picking his 12, and the, the, the two that are in the crowd, he's like, James, and you got a brother named John. I heard you guys have a nickname that was given to you by your dad called Sons of Thunder. I don't know what you did to get that, but it'll probably come in handy with where we're going. You're in, right? You are in. Sons of Thunder are on my team. So they're fired up about that. Uh, Jesus picks them to be on their team. And then we, we learn a little bit more about John. Uh, later on, Jesus is doing some ministry with these 12 disciples, with the men that he has chosen. And they roll up into a city where, just honestly, like people are just not into the gospel. They don't like Jesus. They don't like the 12 disciples. They're not being hospitable. They're not receiving the message. Like They don't even want these people in their town. And when John kind of feels like the team is getting stiff-armed and, and nobody wants to have anything to do with Jesus, here's what Luke 9.54 says. When the disciples James and John, sons of thunder, they saw this, they looked over at Jesus and they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? So maybe that's where they got that name from. It's like, John's tired of it. He's like, I'm sick of this, man. You guys aren't listening. You're not paying attention. You're not letting us in your house. You're not listening to Jesus. Nobody's joining the team. Here's the deal, man. You're being disrespectful. Okay? So Jesus, do you want James and I to call the sons of thunder, right? It's like tag team champion wrestling style, sons of thunder, to call down fire from heaven and burn this whole mother to the ground. Like, houses, people, kill everybody. Jesus, give us the word, and we will do it. And Jesus is like, whoa, <laughs> okay, all right. Slow your roll, John. First of all, why don't we go with plan B? Why don't we just leave and ask or give them forgiveness? And then as we're walking to the next city, let's talk about your anger issues. That'll be something, that'll be something to talk about. Why don't we talk about that, old sons of thunder? <clears throat> So he's fiery, man. He's, he's fired up. He's pumped up. He's really animated and emotional kind of guy. And uh, John, we actually get some insight into what John thinks about himself uh, in some cases. In addition to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he wrote the Gospel of John, which was this, 
this idea of Jesus' ministry, recording it so that we could have it. And, and John is getting ready to, in his book, he's getting ready to record the most miraculous story that has ever happened. The, the truth of the gospel. John gets ready to write down the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And, and, and I mean, I'm serious. Like, Jesus, he is who he says he is. He rose from the grave. He's not in the tomb anymore. Can you believe this? This changes everything. This is the crux of Christianity. And the first person that, that saw it was Mary, and, and the women went to the tomb early that morning. And, and then this is how John records it in John chapter 20. So she, Mary, came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, Do you know who the other disciple is? It's John. God, that's so crazy. It's like it's worse than referring to yourself in third person, right? He doesn't say Mary came to Peter and John. He doesn't say Mary came to Peter and me. He says Mary came to Peter and there was another person there that was special. (laughs) Someone that was above and beyond everyone else. The one that Jesus loved the most. And that's how he refers to himself there. I love that. So he, he keeps going. Now that we're established that he's the favorite, right? It'd be great when the other disciples read that. They're like, wait, what? John? No. Kidding me. Re- keep reading. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. This is what Mary says. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. It is empty. We do not know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. <laughs> And reached the tomb first. Verse 8, finally the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and he believed. John's getting ready to tell the entire world that Jesus, the tomb is empty, man. It is, it is on that Jesus was right. Forgiveness and life change. And he said, but before I say that, can I just tell you that Peter and I were running to the tomb. And it was a race. Don't let Peter tell you it wasn't a race. Don't even pretend like that wasn't even happening. And within like 500 yards of the empty tomb, I started to pull ahead. And I got there first. Crossed the finish line. And the tomb's empty, of course. But I want you to know that I got, says it twice. I got there first, okay? I was a track star in high school, faster than Peter, the most beloved. That's the John we're talking about. That's who wrote this book. But in the book of 1 John, that young obviously fast runner that thought a lot of himself and that was kind of fiery and emotional and got a reputation for being a son of thunder is now an 80-year-old man. He's one of the only, he's the only disciple out of the the 11 that were remaining after Jesus' death that did not die a martyr's death. And it's interesting because at this point in his life when he writes 1 John, he is no longer known as a son of thunder. He is no longer known as the guy that got mad at the people that didn't like Jesus and so he wanted fire to rain down from heaven and just wipe everyone out. He's no longer known as the guy that outran Peter to try to get to the tomb. I mean, come on, he is empty and the tomb's empty, but I did outrun him. Here in 1 John, he's known as the disciple of love. Now, how do you get a nickname change like that? What, what happens for you to be known by all those other things for your entire life, but, but then you're an 80-year-old man writing a letter to Christians all over this new movement, this new world, and now all of a sudden you're the disciple of love. See, here's what happened. Jesus changed his life. 
He experienced radical life change through Jesus, and who he once was is not who he is now. And to have a name change like this, he's going to tell us in these verses this morning. We're going to look at just five verses. He's going to tell us what happened. He's going to let us know, how do you move from son of thunder to disciple of love? How do you move from the one that Jesus loved the most to now I'm at the end of my life and I want to do whatever I can to make Jesus' name famous and to help encourage and build up? As an 80-year-old guy, he says, here's the big difference. Here's why I'm the disciple of love now and, and nothing else. He lays it out in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. He says this, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. John starts out by saying, I need to tell you who God is. In order for you to understand how I went from that guy to now this guy, you need to understand who God is. God is foundational to our life change. And John says this, God is light. Which sounds really inspiring. It sounds like something really cool that we could post on our social media accounts with a picture of the sun behind it. But have you ever thought about what that means? <laughs> How do you explain that to somebody that doesn't know Jesus? Hey, let me tell you about God, man. He's light. What, like, a, like a bulb or like a flashlight or like the sun or like a strobe light or is it a party scene? What, like, what do you mean by God is light, and John is actually here, he's speaking in a metaphor that people in Scripture would have understood in this context, in this day and age, they would have been very familiar with this concept of light versus dark, and, and very familiar with what John said when he said God is light, they would have known immediately what it was, but for us, it's not language that we're familiar with, it's really a metaphor for two things, the first one is this, light is a metaphor for truth or illumination. That's why scripture says, Lord, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God illuminates the path in front of us. God is truth. God is illumination. God is pure. God is powerful. God shows us how our world and how our life really is. No, no faking, no, no making things up. Like we just, if God is light, then this is reality. This is the truth. This is pure. So that's how John describes God. God is true. He is perfect. He is pure. There is no blemish in him. And they would have understood that that was what John was talking about. And I love it at the end of the verse. He says, in him there is no darkness at all. There's, there's no darkness. No darkness in God. And so not only is light pure, not only is light uh, good, not only is light truth, but there's another metaphor that he would have been communicating to his people is this, and light is good. Light is the opposite of darkness. Like, have you ever seen a movie before that uh, kind of has maybe like an evil twist to it, or it's really mature content, just really heavy stuff in this movie, will walk out of that and say, man, that, that was dark. That movie was dark. It had a dark plot line. That character was really dark. And in scriptural times, we would say, they would say that for something that symbolized evil or darkness. The light was good. It was pure. It was great. It was powerful. It had a purpose. But the darkness is evil. And John says there's no darkness at all in God. We even use this kind of in a cultural setting. If someone explain something to you for the very first time and you get it, here's what we'll say. Wow, a light bulb went off. Now I understand it. The idea is light was shined on it. Now I know the truth. Now I know what is right. Now I know what is good. Now I know what is reality. Or, or if, if, if somebody explains something to you or shares a fact, you're like, wow, that was really illuminating to me. 
Ah, man, I, I never thought of it that way. It's this idea of light and dark. And so when God is described as light, it is pure. You need to know this about God. He's pure. He's powerful. He has a purpose. It is good. There is no darkness at all. No evil. No, no, none of that is to be found in God. No darkness, none at all. In the Greek, that's a double negative. And so John is saying like none, no, nada, zip, zip, no darkness at all. Nothing wrong, nothing bad, nothing evil is found in God. And that's the nature that he uses to describe God is light. And he starts by telling you who God is, which is crucial for us to understand. But then in, in verse 6, he says, now let me tell you who I am. Okay, let me, tell you, let me tell you who you are. If that is who God is, then here's, here's who I am and who you are. Number six, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live in the truth. Now that we know that God is light, let's talk about who you and I are. If God is light, then there is no darkness in him. And if we claim to be in the light then and have fellowship with him, if you claim to know God, if you're here today and you're like, I'm a Christian, I'm on Team Jesus, if we claim to know God, then Scripture says there will be no darkness in you. And here's why. Because light and darkness literally cannot coexist. You will never walk into a room and say, it's both light and dark in here. Like, you will never have that scenario. I mean, the definition of darkness is literally the absence of light. So you cannot have light and dark at the same time. So here's the analogy. Ready? John says there's, there's no way that you can have the light in you but yet be walking in the darkness. So everyone in here can see. Right now the lights are on. Maybe there's some, some dark paint or maybe some shadows, but there's no darkness in here when the light's on. Now watch this. So now we have darkness in here. You want to know why? Because we turn the light out and there's no darkness where there is light. And so right now it's void of any kind of light. But watch this. When the light shows back up, the darkness leaves. It cannot coexist. You cannot have light and dark in the same place at the same time. As soon as light shows up, you'll never feel like, hey, there were two guys at a party last night, light and dark. No, they will never be at the same party. They will never be in the same room together. When one leaves, the other one comes in. They cannot coexist. And so John uses this analogy, and he says, in your life, light and dark cannot coexist. And he goes as far as to say in verse 6, he says, if we claim that we're walking in the light, but yet in our life is darkness, then, then we are deceiving ourselves. We, we don't know what we're saying. We lie and we do not live out the truth. Now, there's a scary question in there. Like, I don't know if you're feeling it. But when I read that, I was like, whoa. Now, I know I'm not perfect. I know there's some darkness in my life. I know there's sin in my life. Like, I've made mistakes. I make mistakes every day. John, are you saying that as long as there's darkness somewhere in my life, then that means, like, God is not here? Am I even a Christian? It's going to be bad if I'm not a Christian and I'm the pastor of the church. Like, I feel like that's a prerequisite. <laughs> are you saying that if I make mistakes, if I'm a sinner, if I fall short of what God has called me to, if there's any darkness in my life, then that means I don't know God? And John's like, I'm glad you asked that question. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. I'm going to take you back to elementary school here and look at these two verbs. They're both walk and cleanse. They're both in the present tense. 
And if you're anything like me in elementary school, that means nothing, right? <laughs> when the teacher says, like, okay, so what? Let me explain it to you. Let me break it down for people that are on my English level. It means both of those things are continuously happening. Walking and cleansing. Here's what John says. It's not that if there's any darkness in your life, then that means you are apart from God. God doesn't know you. You are lost, going to die and go to hell tonight if you die. No, he says, as long as you are walking, then here's what happens. Walking in the light means Jesus is cleansing you of your sin. Every day you're going to make a mistake. Every day you're going to sin. Every day you're not going to live up to the standard that God has. Your attitudes, your actions, your speech, your heart, even just little things about your life will not honor God. But here's the promise of John. As long as you are walking in the light, then Jesus will be cleansing your sins. The blood of Jesus cleanses you every day. As long as those two things. Now, if you're walking in the darkness, there is no cleansing. There's no way that light and dark can be in the same room. And so John doesn't argue here that if you've ever made a mistake or if there's any darkness in your life, then Jesus doesn't like you, doesn't know you, like you're far from God, and you are toast if he ever finds out. And he says, here's what we do. Every day we walk in the light, continue to walk, and Jesus continues to cleanse. Every day, make decisions, make mistakes, and Jesus forgives. Walking in the light simply means this. It's not that we're perfect, it's that we're honest. Here's what John says, man, if you would just be honest that you're not perfect, and you would admit those things to yourself and admit those things to God and begin to walk with God, then God will cleanse you of those things. I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm just asking you to be honest. Because if you're not willing to say, there's some areas in my life that need addressing, that there are some darkness, that there is some sin, that I'm not perfect, that, that, that there are some areas that I need to confess and repent of and turn back to God, if you're not willing to say that, then you will continue to walk in the darkness. But John says, as you walk in the light, Jesus will cleanse you of your sins every single day. That's the promise, recurring every day. Verbs in the present tense means it's continuing to happen, continuing to do that. God, that's a promise from Scripture, from God. Verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever met people that will, will tell you, I, I, I'm a good person. Right? I, I, I don't make mistakes. I mean, I've made some mistakes, but they're not like sins, okay? Like, I've never killed anybody. I've never done anything crazy. Uh, like, most of the Ten Commandments I've tried to keep. Like, I am a good person, and sometimes we'll trick ourselves into thinking that we are good enough and that it, there is no darkness and the darkness doesn't matter and we don't need to address those things. Like, I am good enough. And John says, if you're walking in the light, that doesn't mean that you are sinless. It doesn't mean that you are perfect. It just means that you are honest. And here's what he says. If anyone says they do not sin, guess what that makes them? A liar. And guess what that makes you? A sinner. <laughs> So even if you've never sinned before, if you raise your hand and say, I've never sinned before, boom, you're a sinner. Welcome to the club. <laughs> so now that everyone in here has sinned, now we've got to ask ourselves, what are we going to do about it? And here's the danger. Sometimes we get so used to the darkness, we don't even realize it's dark anymore. When I put my daughter to bed at night, it's pandemonium because her room is dark, even though she's got like a 60-watt light bulb. Um, as a nightlight right beside her bed. It's dark in here, Dad. It's dark. What is that? It's a shadow. What is that, Dad? Close the closet door, Dad. It's dark in there. 
She's not used to the darkness. But do you know what plays out the next morning? I go downstairs to fix the girls' breakfast before they get up, and my youngest daughter comes down the stairs. Elizabeth will bring her down the stairs, and I can already hear, Turn out the light! Turn the light out! It's so bright! It hurts my eyes! It's so bright! And so I have to turn all of the kitchen lights out except for like the 10-watt bulb above the sink, and even that's the, oh, it's so bright! And she comes in and like, she just buries her head in my shoulder because she just can't stand the light. And then I set her down at the table with her cereal, and I turn around, and she jumps up from her chair and runs into the den because there's no lights on in the den, and she buries her face in the couch cushions. She's like, it's so light, it's so light. See, what happens when you get used to the darkness, you don't even realize it's dark anymore. And the more you stay in that darkness, the more you get used to it, and the more you convince yourself that it's no big deal, that it's really not that big of a thing. Is it really dark in here? Because I can actually see pretty good now that my eyes have adjusted to it. And the uncomfortable thing about the light is it reveals while the darkness conceals. And sometimes light reveals things that we don't want to see. And it reveals things that we've been pretending aren't there for a long time. And people will get so used to the darkness that even the thought of light will cause them to run into the den and bury their head in the the couch cushions because the light is just too much. And John says, don't get so used to the darkness that you run from the light. Don't get so used to the darkness that you begin to convince yourself that it's really not that big of a deal. It's really actually not that dark in here. I can see everything. I mean, the lights are off, but I can see there's the furniture there and the things that are on the floor. And I would rather just stay here in the darkness where there's perceived comfort or there's perceived nothing that I'm going to need to grow in or do differently or or move and and move forward in that progress don't get to that point in life that's the danger of the darkness John closes with some really really good news in verse 9 he says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. John lands the plane here and says, can I say it again, man? I'm not calling you to be perfect. I'm calling you to be honest. He says, if we confess our sins. John didn't say, if you have any sins. Like, he knows. Everybody knows. If you don't think you have any sins, just ask the person beside you. They'll tell you, you're a sinner. Like, you have sin. You are not the perfect person. If we confess, not half of you should confess, or, well, just kind of do an evaluation. You may not have anything to confess, and that's cool. So just, no, he says, there's this assumption that you and I are going to be honest with ourselves. Not perfect, but honest. And say, if we confess our sins, you're not claiming to be perfect. You're just willing to be honest. You're willing to look at God and say, I see there's some areas in my life that are still in the darkness, and I need for you to shine a light on those. God, I realize I've been walking in some darkness in some areas of my life, and I want to come back to the light. But here's the scary scary question. What happens when you confess to God what you've done? What happens when God finds out what you have said or done in the darkness? When I was growing up, my brother and I uh, were wrestling in the den, and my mom had gone to run an errand, and we were doing things that boys do, uh, throwing stuff at each other and wrestling and just being boys. There was a uh, plate that was displayed on one of the tables in our den. It was a gift to my parents on their wedding day. And it was a really nice plate that had 
gold trim around the outside of it, and it had been engraved with the wedding vows that they shared on their wedding day, and, and this lady had hand-painted it, or got it hand-painted, and it was just really elaborate, and I found out later that, that it was given to my mom by a really close friend of hers that had uh, passed away in, in recent years. Irreplaceable gift, a priceless gift to my mom on her wedding day, and my brother and I were wrestling, and my brother threw me and pushed me into the table, and um, that irreplaceable handmade plate by someone that had already passed away that was really close to my mom shattered. And the most anxious part of that process was right after it happened, I had no idea what my mom was going to do. Like, how would my mom respond? Was she going to be mad? Uh, was she going to be sad? Was she going to be disappointed? Uh, I, I, I didn't know. And so my, my mom came back from the air, and we told her what had happened, and we showed her the plate. And I, and I think a little bit of nostalgia came over because she remembered who it was that gave her that very special gift. And, and once she realized that she wasn't going to be able to glue it back together, um, there was just this, I, I can remember my mom crying over it. And uh, you got to understand about something about my house. Uh, if my brother and I ever made my mom cry, my dad would make us cry. And that's what happened when he got home. <clears throat> but the most anxious part was, how is mom going to respond? What's mom going to do? And maybe the most anxious part for you today is, hey, I, I know I've got some darkness in my life, but what's going to happen when I confess it to God? Come on, man, what's God going to do? Is he going to freak out? Is he going to flip? Is, is he going to yell? Is he going to be mad? Is he going to smite me right here in front of everybody? Like, what, what's going to happen when the light penetrates the darkness? What's going to happen when I confess those sins? And the incredible part about John, it says, I'll tell you. You don't have to be anxious about what God's going to say. You don't have to be worried about what happens when you are honest with your sins in front of God. If you confess your sins, then he is mad and going to hit you. Nope. If you confess your sins, then he is going to be super disappointed and really shocked that you did some of the things you did. Nope. If you confess your sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We already know how the Father is going to respond. We already know the promise from Scripture that if we would not be perfect, just be honest. That we've made mistakes. That there are areas of our life that we need to confess and bring in front of God. And John says, listen to this, let me tell you something about the God that is light. When the light penetrates the darkness, there is not shame, there is not guilt, but there is forgiveness. And there's an action of making the slate clean, wiping it all away. That's what awaits you as you meet, maybe for the very first time, the God that is light. That's what meets you when a life comes out of the darkness. And as we walk in the light, Jesus cleanses us from our sin. Not in front of a God that is shocked or surprised or angry or is going to spank you or throw something or yell something at you, but a God that is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Through the light, God offers life. Not guilt, not shame, not death, not darkness, but life. What's going to happen when dad finds out? 
It's love. Because in the light is purpose and purity. In the light is truth and grace. And in the light, through the blood of Jesus, is forgiveness for you and for me. That's what takes a son of thunder calling fire down from heaven into the disciple of love. And that's the same God that you can meet this morning.